We're going to be talking about something uh, different, and I have an extensive, lengthy uh, video of a lecture uh, series. It's actually an uh, audio blog with the slides of a talk I gave at UCLA, and and it's primarily for uh, researchers, clinicians, and basic scientists that are interested in understanding and developing, and even entrepreneurs that are entering into the regenerative space market, whether it's additive printing, regenerative technology, and, and, and novel technologies in general. And what I'd like to share with you is some of the challenges that people face when they're developing novel technologies. And many people have this fear and concern about the regulatory prospect. Um, they, they think that, oh, the FDA is an agency you should fear. And I want to uh, remove that veil. And, and certainly from the standpoint of um, myself, um, a, a previous uh, regulator where I spent some time in the FDA, as well as my interaction with the FDA, as well as colleagues. And yes, the FDA is there to protect public safety, but it's also there to help. The FDA is there in order to provide guidance during development and not just there to review a file, it's there to help along the process. And so I go into some of the details to some extent and you can certainly review this during uh, the blog. It's about a 45 minute presentation that I gave at UCLA and it, it touches on some really important salient points. And I think the important thing that I really wanted to bring out is how important patients are to the FDA and to our science and our outcomes. And it seems, again, a very obvious, simple point, but what patients feel like during development or how important they feel like a novel technology may help them is all part of the FDA's initiative to gather more information from the patient and caregivers in order to understand how it affects clinical outcome assessment tools such as patient reported outcomes or clinician reported outcomes. As entrepreneurs, researchers, scientists, healthcare providers, and developers of new technology, the recent guidances by the FDA are important. They're valuable information for everyone. And always keep in mind that there may be really good approaches to developing new technology in the regenerative space, synthetic additive manufacturing space that carry less risk of failure or disease transmission. And we need to take that into account when we're developing products from inception, design, development, and moving forward through towards commercial labeling. So I hope you enjoy this talk. It is a lengthy 45 minute talk and I think it brings up a number of points, some questions that were asked, all of which I hope you enjoy. And uh, if you um, have any questions, reach out to me. I'm here for you. Please welcome Dr. Faisal Mirza with a round of applause. Thanks, uh, Fabrizio, uh, for having me here. and. Uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, your time, and, uh, and thank you for the great introduction. It can only go downhill. <laughs> so um, what, um, let me just make sure I got the pointer. So 
it's just uh, we already went through uh, my background, but the most important is that I am from Canada, and even though I'm going for the Warriors, the Raptors are 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 in the uh, in the final, so that's important. Uh, <laughs> So um, one of the things, and I apologize uh, for this slide, but my understanding was that everyone was a lawyer, well-versed in um, regulatory guidance, and um, Title 21 of public health law has 321 pages. And what I'd like to do is go line by line through each page. I couldn't even keep a straight face through that. <laughs> Thought I would, but I wouldn't, so don't worry. So what I'd like to do is first talk about what I see as an orthopedic surgeon. Not necessarily what I see all the time right now, but a lot of what's going on in the clinical space is driving my brain to try and understand what the needs are. And I feel like you guys, are, are, are many of you are on the research side, and I think there's a diverse group of people from uh, mostly on the research side, um, you know, I think it's important to have a collaborative understanding of what's happening. So, you know, kudos to our um, military for being out there. Uh, but this is what happens when an IED blast goes. And you can imagine when that happens, bad things happen. A lot of kinetic energy. Same thing with a motorcycle. Every time I think about a motorcycle, I see a tibia fracture come in. So I've never purchased a motorcycle ever. Um, and so what kind of injuries do you get? Lots of terrible things happen. And uh, this is not for gore, this is not to um, you know, provoke a reaction, but this is the reality of worst case scenarios from orthopedic musculoskeletal injuries. Now, this could be torn up from cancer, it could be torn up from trauma, it could be torn up from a lot of different things, and then we, right now we fix it. You know, and, and what I really want to change is this. And that's why I'm hoping we all can work together and, and you guys help me make this better. Uh, because there's a lot of muscle, nerve, tissue damage. And to some extent, when we go to, um, oops, I went the wrong way, sorry. When we go to fix things, we're using metallic devices traditionally. Sure, we have some plastic devices. I'll, I'll go get into that a little bit. Uh, we've got internal devices. We've got external devices. And many devices, I mean, it wasn't until I came to the FDA that I realized there's so much information that nobody knows about, no one's heard about, and I can't even talk about. But it's, it's unbelievable what's out there and what's being developed even to this day that we may never hear about for five to 10 to 20 years. And so the challenge is what, what you do here. Traditionally, you put fixators on, you put nails, screws, rods, plates, and you try and patch it together. You have soft tissue injuries that you have to deal with. You lose muscle, tissue. And then, so do you fix the bone? Do you fix the muscle? Do you fix the nerve? Do you fix the skin? It's a combination of things. And then, what happens when things go wrong? That's a joint replacement that showed up on call um, at one of the hospitals where nothing like this ever shows up, and yet this showed up. And I had the pleasure of washing this out. Um, and then I was able to pass it off to one of the other joint reconstruction guys who was on call the next time. And he happily took it over because he loves this. Um, 
But can anyone guess what this is? Brown, thick, tenacious fluid. And it was smells, it smelled bad, and it's pus. It came out of the knee, and it poured out into this, and then we opened up, and this was what we saw. So um, how many of you have done a, or seen a knee replacement? Okay, so, okay, a few of you, okay. So you're not supposed to be able to see this upper part of the tibial part of the implant. That's supposed to be embedded in bone. You should only see the top of the metal, the plastic, and then this uh, shiny part, which is the opposing surface. So there's bone loss, there's muscle loss, there's tissue loss, there's tendon loss. And why is this all important? Why am I telling you all about this? Because this is what's happening to patients and I'm using these stark examples because I feel like, to some extent, some people believe, oh, we gotta go for the easy stuff, the low-hanging fruit. To me, this is low-hanging fruit because if you can solve this, anything less than this is a no-brainer. And so um, I, I think that's why it's important, whether it's infections, bad trauma, critical size, bone defects, all of those things are important. So what we have right now as the latest and greatest devices, and some of these I actually reviewed many years ago when I was at the FDA, where they were starting to come thinner, more rounded, variable angles, all of those fancy devices. I'm gonna call these all transient devices. Why are they transient? Anyone? Oh, they have too many So, uh, uh, that, yeah, sure. I mean, that's one thing. What, what, uh, what else? What, are they, what is it made out of? Metal. It's metal, right? What's our bodies made, what are our bodies made out of? Not metal, right? So we're putting these stiff uh, implants, as fancy as they are with shiny color-coded implants, and we're putting them in our patients. And I, I, I'm one of those orthopedic surgeons that would happily want to put myself out of business. And the reason is that my patients don't want this anymore. Because if I were to offer them a better solution, they would pick tissue over metal, or pick something else, or even pick no surgery. So, um, are there any orthopedic surgeons in the room? No. Oh, oh, there is one, okay, all right, sorry. <laughs> so, um, but that's okay, because it's gonna take some time. Yes? Plastic, why don't they use plastic? Sure, and I'll, I'll get to that, but um, one of, I mean, it's a, a terrible but good example is the reason I don't like plastic is because of uh, biotoxicity um, and the fact that we have too much plastic in the ocean. And so if, it depends on the type of material and the type of plastic, but there are certain polymers you could consider out there, but um, there, there's a certain acidity that happens with both certain types of metals and um, um, you're, you're taking away one of the slides I'm going to show later, but that's good because you're thinking like 12 slides ahead. That's great. No, when I'm saying plastic, compost, compost. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they exist. And they exist. So, um, you know, it's not that I'm saying that we just have metal, but we've got all sorts of different devices. Some of them um, are additive manufactured. Some of them are plastic. And some of them are absorbable biocomposites. And some of them are absorbable metals. Did, has anyone ever heard of absorbable metals? 
So mostly no nods, a few yes nods, right? First time I heard about it. Yeah. So first time I heard about it was at the FDA. And it was during the, I was in the regenerative medicine uh, uh, working group and there was a presentation on magnesium um, implants and it just blew my mind, absorbable metals. And then I started talking about it and everyone thought I was crazy because no one else outside the FDA was talking about it because it was, there were problems with it. And there can be problems with it. I think the biggest problem with right now is the uh, degradation properties of absorbable metals. And if, to some extent with the absorbable polymers because it's not just, and you know, I, I'm not gonna bore you guys with the science because you guys know the science better than I do, but it's a matter of acidity primarily as well as just uh, cystic fluid release during the kinetics and the, of, of breakdown. And so what happens is that these are great, they absorb, but they can have other toxicity. Uh, issues happen and then does anyone want metal ions in their blood come on raise your hands no, oh, no. Yeah. okay some right yeah. but we don't know what that level is right so some is good and it's probably a small amount but too much is bad so um so what about uh, and then we have allographs so for uh, for for certain defects whether it's tissue whether it's bone whether it's nerve we have allograft well there's all sorts of um, allograft preparation involved. So we take some allograft. What do we do with it? We can't just put it directly. And uh, does everyone fully understand what an allograft is? I, I know it sounds like a really simple question. No, that's autograft. Okay. So uh, allograft is from someone else. Okay. But um, I, I'm not going to take it from you, right? You want your bone, right? You're using your liver, right? Right. Monty Python reference? No? Okay. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll try a different one next time. Yeah, you gotta introduce them to Monty Python. So, um, yes, yeah. Is it possible uh, for the bad injuries, for the cycle action, what, what, uh, if the tissues are badly damaged, can they manage to assemble it together outside uh, and uh, with, with, with the environment that keeps it alive? And then, uh, Sure. You know, I, I think that'll get into some of what I'm going to get into is, is the regulation uh, and, and then the surgical procedure. Like, can you take tissue, culture it, grow it, build it, ex vivo, and then bring it back? And... Um, Actually, I just realized, is this mic on? Is it successful? I, I may not have put the mic on, sorry. There we go. Is it successful? Well, I think it's all still, to some extent, um, like we, uh, in uh, autologous chondrocyte implantation, where you grow the cartilage outside and put it back in, the data shows that it's not, any be uh, that it's not very good. So it, it really depends on what it is that you're doing and what you're growing outside. But there's a lot of uh, regulatory uh, questions that come up, which, you know, I also, uh, you know, I think it's it's very important question to bring up. Um, but when we're preparing allografts, so allografts are dead people, right? So that means someone dies and the tissue goes to a bank. And um, does anyone watch John Oliver? Okay, good. All right. So there's a modern Monty Python, finally. 
So, so John Oliver presented this uh, topic about what's happening in the sort of uh, cadaveric tissue world. So when people pass away and donate their bodies, um, there's a lot of dark um, events happening. And it's worth looking it up. You can YouTube it. But the challenge, of course, is do I want dead tissue that essentially is not living, somehow reconstituted, cleaned, and sterilized, and put back in? Because ultimately, it's a, because it's a, it's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. Because what do you have to do with it? You have to prepare it, sterilize it, package it, manufacture it, and then put it back in, right? And it doesn't matter how fancy the packaging is, you're still, all you're doing is either power washing it or irradiating it. How many of you want radiation-induced tissue in your body? If you had a choice, okay, good. So, or either you don't care. Or, or, or everyone agrees, and I'll just assume everyone agrees they don't want radiated tissues in their body, which is good. And when you prepare some of this bone, and, and this is actually from a study I'll quote briefly, but you're actually increasing the amount of holes in the tissue when you try and wash it or lavage it or clean it or sterilize it. So that's some of the challenges in it. So, and the biggest issue, and this is going to be, uh, this is probably the most, one of, one of, the imp most important slides I wanted to, to show. Because when you're putting this tissue in, on the one hand, we're in a space where we want regenerative tissue. We want synthetic bone. We want synthetic muscle. We want something, some kind of a synthetic implant to go into our bodies to replace the status quo, right? But what we're using right now, can anyone hazard to guess what the uh, complication rate or serious adverse event rate, that's sort of a, uh, a term used in clinical trials, studies, and regulatory uh, submissions. What do you think the typical complication rate, including infections, failures, uh, migrations, revisions, is for allograft implantation? So that's when you take dead tissue, put it into a living human. What are the outcomes? Anyone want to guess what the average complication yeah. or... Pick a number. Oh, I, I can't. 10, 20. So everyone's right. Why is that? Because it's all over the map. It is ridiculous that we accept such a high problem complication rate with, with allografts. What do you think would happen if you had a 40% complication rate in your device that you built and synthesized and tried to put it into humans? What, if, what would the FDA say if you had a 40% complication rate or SAE rate? No way. If you had more than 2% above baseline or the placebo or your comparative trial arm, you would be in trouble. That's what happened to a number of drugs recently. Um, that they were they uh, blipped above that two percent line, and not that two percent is a hard number. Don't leave here quoting. Oh, two percent is what the FDA says. That's not what the. It, it's just that's kind of a, a number I've often seen. Uh, yes, in the back. Uh, so is this range just for a specific type of procedure, or is it for 
So it includes meniscus, it includes bone, it includes uh, like ACL tissue grafts, a lot of implants. And, and that's why there's, there's no reference here. I mean, there's probably like hundreds of paper. I mean, you could just pull up the data yourself and do a PubMed search and you'd get, you know, 30 uh -huh. hits very quickly um, in terms of systematic reviews on, on, on this number. And it's all over the map. And, um, and that's the scary part because this is what we have and this is what we're accepting and yet there's a, a, a different bar for devices which is something that I see and I want to impress upon all of you that this is excellent rationale for coming to the FDA and saying we need something better. So from a regulatory perspective, I think the argument is simple. You just have to build the argument that why are we accepting this when I can have synthetic sterile bone that is, has zero failure rate. It's probably going to be around 2 to 5%. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's going to be a complication rate. Anyone that says zero is uh, either in Europe or, 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 or lying, right? Um, so, so, and then you look at the infection rates. The infection rates are high. What else can you get? Aside from just a run-of-the-mill infection that you can happen with any device, what else can you get from dead tissue? Don't look at the slide. What kind of virus can you get? You can get HIV or Hep C. That's still a risk. Do you guys put HIV or Hep C into your synthetic tissue when you're making it? No. So the fact that this exists is an opportunity to stand before the FDA and say, hey, we have an unmet need. I mean, this is, these are glaring examples of how to move the market forward. And if it were up to me, I would basically put all the physicians together um, and simply say, we will stop using allograft until we have something better because this is unacceptable. And that's where we need to push the needle to make that leap to innovation, which is, which is why, you know, <coughs> I'm here because I want to share what it is that we need to do. And yes? Is it possible to take a bone uh, from another Oh, absolutely. And for. Oh, sure. There's always a risk. I mean, you're not necessarily going to have the. Um, you still have cross-contamination because you're having surgery, but you may not necessarily care about HIV or Hep C because if you already have it, it doesn't matter. And we've done that. Say you have a gap defect in a humerus fracture or tumor case. You have to take a vascularized fibula. You put it somewhere else. Anyone orthopedic oncology or tumor? Anyone working in cancer? So in, in oncology, it's a big pro uh, problem. So you have to sometimes use uh, autograph. But um, you know, in, in, in allograft is the challenge, but in autograft, there's still complication rates because if you have one good leg, uh, sorry, if you have yeah, one good leg and one has the tumor and you're now taking the good leg and taking out tissue, now you have potentially two bad legs. So do, that graft site morbidity is something we also want to uh, eliminate. So, and one of the mantras that I also drives my thinking is that convention kills innovation. And I, I, I want to uh, uh, tell a story, and I'm probably going to, you know, 
get in trouble for this because a, a lot of you and Fabrizio study bone. But I was at a research meeting a few years ago uh, at an institution that remains unnamed. And um, I was sitting there and they were talking about uh, bone cells and growing osteocytes and osteoblasts and on, uh, on cell culture media. And then they wanted to oscillate it and vibrate it on a plate. And it's pretty routine and conventional and standard. You, you do this. And, and, and um, the, um, the rate at which it was being done, the oscillation was one hertz. And I don't know whether they, that's still the right number, but that was the number that was being used. And at one hertz, I asked the question, uh, so is that a fire alarm? Oh, okay. So at one hertz, uh, the question, um, uh, I asked the question, why are we using one hertz? And for me, it was about why don't we use a, a, diff a different number or something else. And the response was basically, well, one hertz is one cycle per second. I'm like, and? Because to me, it's like, well, why don't we use, you know, two or pi or e or, or, or 1.1? Like, it doesn't matter, right? And so the response I got was that one hertz was how a prior multiple prior studies had published it for that particular type of project, and that's how it was going to be done. And to me, I, know, I understand that there's a convention and there's a way that needs to be done. But I also want to sort of also, I realize that that can limit your innovation because just because it was done at a certain level by someone else doesn't mean that's the way it needs to be done. And so as orthopedic surgeon, all we, we essentially have a hammer. And what I'm trying to do is get rid of that hammer and not use it again. And um, so then I'll be you know, trying to figure out what to do if I get rid of surgeries, right? Uh, Fabrizio, yeah. So, and the other, and actually Fabrizio and I were talking about this uh, earlier, and, and this is kind of like a bunch of mishmash of slides that I thought I got, tried to get creative with putting all these different slides together, but why is this important is to understand that sometimes we're working on different parts and we need to think about integrating it all together. So bone, on its own, without the vascular channels, is less understood even without the muscle. So if we can understand it in a model that includes all aspects of structure and physiology, I think it's important. Because if, from the standpoint of whether it's microfluidics or additive manufacturing or 3D printing, whatever it is, the physiology is becoming more important as to how things are happening within the body. And that requires an understanding of the macro and the micro architecture. So when it comes to replacing tissue, we've got lots of options. I don't need to spend a lot of time on this sli slide. One of my favorites was silk. Then it became chitosan. I, I'm tired of tricalcium phosphate and all these other types of uh, tissues. Um, I, I like synthetic tissue. I have my own biases, um, you know, following the research in terms of way, where it's going. There's lots of different nanofibrils and electrospun. I, I, I won't belabor this because this is even going way above my head, but some of the data in terms of the bone cell growth and meniscal tissue with various different, um, you know, assays and treatments is, is, is incredible to use as a scaffold. But 
And then um, we talked about microfluidics, and I believe this is even a local paper. Um, so what, how can we make everything that we have better for the patients? Well, one way is to take what we're doing and manage how we're delivering it. So if anything, thinking about the patient and what the patient needs are, but then how you're going to deliver it to that patient is important to understand as well. So for example, has anyone, if, if say you wanted to print bone, what are the different ways you can print uh, bone? We, we heard one area where you do it outside the bone, outside the body, ex vivo. Has anyone heard of in situ printing? where you print it directly into the body? Oh, I heard, saw one, one yes nod. So it's, it's happening. People are developing it. But, you know, a, a patient's moving around. How do you deliver it? Because, I mean, you guys, is, is everyone familiar with additive manufacturing, the printing process, very time-consuming cell-by-cell fluids? So it takes a lot of work to do that. So how do you do that in situ? Or how do you even do that ex vivo and control how it's made? So controlling the delivery, and, and this is where I think robotics and artificial intelligence can really help launch how the delivery is controlled. So it, 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 it seems like, okay, I'm, I'm working on this microfluidic model, but then at some point you have to step back and say, wait, how is this going to get into that patient? And, and, and maybe it doesn't matter for your particular research, but it does for the patient because if you can think of a way to do this, that's a, a, a product. That is a commercial venture. Yes? They are doing 3D uh, tissue uh, printing. 3D tissue printing. Yeah. But it's not applicable in bone because uh, it takes time, right? Yeah, right now, yes. Yeah. So, but like I said, there are people trying to do not just bone printing ex vivo, but um, in situ. So there's, there's a lot of uh, different areas that it's being developed in. So one of the challenges, okay, fine. This is all fine and dandy, and, 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 and it looks like only a couple of people have, have, have fallen asleep. So, so this, is, this is where the heart of the matter comes. Okay, so you're doing all this research, then you're going to publish your paper, and then the next step is, hey, I could, let's build a company, right? I mean, you've got a technology transfer office here. It's a brilliant idea. If it works in the rat, why can't it work in humans, right? Well, so a lot of people fear the FDA. And one of the challenges um, is to break that uh, notion that it's the FDA. I mean, certainly even when I was there, are craving new ideas. They're, to some extent, as much as people fear like, okay, you know, they're just the gatekeepers, they're always going to say no, there's a reason for that. And what I learned was that when you're inside the FDA, you see everything. You see all the data. So if the FDA tells you that your device needs, has uh, these deficiencies and requires this um, to complete the file and re we require more 
preclinical data, there's a reason behind that. And usually it turns out because some other company tried something similar, had a horrible outcome, and they have the data, it's proprietary, and it's unpublished. And so you can't, uh, so, and you have no idea. It's unpublished data. And so that's what makes it challenging. And sometimes, and certainly the FDAs are going to say, hey, they're not going to publicly uh, backlash anyone saying anything. And so one of the important things is that when it comes to the FDA, um, they want to talk. They want open dialogue and communication. And the other thing that's important is that there's a, an increasing awareness and understanding that patient input is valuable. And one of uh, the research grants that I had uh, while I was at the FDA was specifically on patient-related, patient-reported outcomes in device-related orthopedic surgery uh, with respect to the minimally important difference, and it was all related to clinical outcome assessments, which is now the, the new vogue term for any of those clinical measures and patient perspective ideas. But it's the idea that what a patient feels about a product an opportunity and risk either during development, after the study's published, or after a, during labeling, uh, the final steps of licensing or, or labeling before it's commercialized, um, the patient input is important. So if you have a device that's a little higher risk than say a plastic meniscus and you have a tissue meniscus and it's considered higher risk, but patients, you have data on 100 patients saying they would prefer tissue over plastic, the FDA will look at that and say, well, you know, in all things considered, this information shows that it's slightly increased risk, but patients value it more, let's take another look. And that's why it's important to always understand what the patient's perspective is. And this is a very simplistic perspective of how oftentimes when you have a device and it goes into the regulatory uh, process of say a 510K, it's like, oh, I have a device. I want to get it uh, approved. One of the important issues is, well, is there a device already on the market? Does it affect safety and efficacy? And are there technological characteristics that haven't been asked before. Now, how many people think they can come up with a question that the FDA hasn't seen before or has not asked before? Sure. So, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's possible, but I was, like, one of the things that, uh, you know, my colleagues impressed upon me is when it comes to this step in the decision-making process, are there different questions of safety and efficacy Unless you can dematerialize a human and put it onto Mars, there's pretty well no type of question that they haven't asked before. Do you have kidney toxicity? Do you have skin toxicity? Do you have uh, physiological characteristics? Are there anatomical characteristics? So in terms of these different types of questions, it's important to understand that a lot the FDA has seen. and. The idea of where to go with the FDA is important. And that's why the conversations are, are important. So, so say you have a device. 
You've gone through the process. You've identified a patient problem, bone defect, infected non-union. Those are actually my favorite. Infected non-union and, and, and critical size bone defect. Those are, those are the things that I want to solve. And every, every orthopedic surgeon wants and doesn't want to solve. Because you lose business and gain business, which is better? So for patients, it's better not to have infected non-unions and critical size bone defects that you can solve. So having a conversation with the FDA, I'm assuming everyone has put a grant application to get, uh, uh, together. What if you had no page limit on the number of questions and submission you could have before a regulatory body? How many people would be happy with that? That there's no limit on what you could ask and how many questions you could ask and how much material you could provide the FDA or regulatory body. I'm going to assume everyone raised their hands because uh, everyone's following. But in the pre-RFD, that is an opportunity you have. It's non-binding. You can talk to the, set it up. You can submit as much material, and there's no page limit. So say you have a novel meniscus that you're developing, and you want to see what the FDA thinks, you just set up a pre-RFD. An RFD is request for designation. So is it a device? Is it a biologic? Is it a, uh, a drug? Is it a drug-eluting meniscus? Is it a, uh, in the case of the meniscus, it's going to be a scaffold, so it's considered a device. So it doesn't matter what agent is attached to it. It's going to be a device. Um, and, 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 and that's not the purpose of the, of the talk, but I can get into if you have questions about that after. But that's the beauty of having this opportunity for open communication. And has anyone seen the recent guidance documents out recently uh, by the FDA? Wow, everyone's hands went up. <laughs> so this is important. And I put them up here, not for you to read, but these are publicly available um, on the patient-focused drug development. And some of that, to, you may find overlaps. Because you may have a combination product where you're like, Wait, what if I put a BMP2 or a parathyroid peptide onto this screw or, or, or bone implant and, 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 and try and change the architecture uh, and strength of the bone? And well, so is it a drug? Is it a device? What is it? Um, and so, so that's why it's important to review this information about uh, the patient-focused aspect. Because when it comes, and, and, and actually, sorry, this one is a, a draft guidance uh, document. And then the patient preference, the FDA has been having multiple meetings over many years to try and get this patient preference information, which gets back to patient value. How much do patients want it? And what is the feedback you are getting from the patients during development? And that will help you during the risk assessments for various submissions. Um, and when we're getting to tissue regenerative products, it applies as well. Now, much of, now if you're mostly in devices, this may not necessarily be the type of guidance document that you need. But this is fresh out 2019. The reason this is important is that you may very well have an RMAT, which is regenerative medicine tissue product. And uh, uh, the definition is here. Um, 
in terms of what it is, but it's primarily to deliver a drug or biologic. So a meniscus scaffold that's primarily a device would not be an RMAT, but if say you had a patch that you wanted to stick in or inject in or put in through a scope or a laparoscope and it provides drug or a drug eluding, you know, um, maybe not a stent because a stent has a certain device characteristic, but say you want to uh, deliver uh, cellular tissue, gene therapy, uh, various cellular biologic products. So th those are RMATs. And the reason these are all important is there's overlap. So get, when I get back to the RFD, the request for designation, um, you, you may not even know what your product is. And if it is an RMAP, there are breakthrough expedited ways to get it through the regulatory process. So that means if, say, you have a product that you want to improve bone strength that has a biologic and it turns out it could fall under RMAP, then you could have a breakthrough device that may not to need to meet efficacy, it may need just to meet safety. And so that's why this is really important. And um, I know that everyone um, understands the regulatory perspective, so, um, but I'm happy to go over it more. The other issue that I wanted to review in the regulatory aspect, and it comes back to the question earlier about the surgical procedure, whether it's the same surgical procedure or different surgical procedure. Now, say I take, say there's a, um, a patient uh, that has a, a defect in their cartilage, and I basically take it out and I put it back in at a later time point. Does anyone understand what the regulation around that is? So the important thing to understand is in some cases that's regulated by the FDA. In other cases, there's an exemption if it's the same surgical procedure. And the surgical procedure doesn't have to happen on the same day. You just have to make sure that you're not minimally manipulating it. So if you take someone's uh, femoral head allograft, you take it out and say they, there's, for some reason, you put it in a freezer and you're gonna put it back as part of some uh, uh, single procedure, that in order to complete the reconstruction of, say, an oncologic orthopedic deformity, you have to take out a piece of bone, store it for a while, do some vascular nerve work and muscle work, and then come back in later and put that femoral head in, or that bone. That's considered the same surgical procedure. That's an opportunity for development. So you're not limited by it. But if, say, you took the bone, and you grew it in a lab and made uh, culture and, and tissue out of it, that's more than minimally manipulated. So that wouldn't necessarily apply. And the reason I, I put this in is uh, for, the, for the dental um, uh, aspect is one, dental's a good way to learn about bone. Um, a lot of devices first started off in development, like some of the trabecular metal uh, that we use in hip and knee replacements um, actually started off, it was developed in dental implants and then it came to 
the orthopedic device. In Zimmer, for example, um, the trabecular mesh was developed in dental and then translated across. And in some cases, like in this particular case, you have to create a socket, put some bone in, and in this particular case, they're putting bone marrow, aspirate, and stem cells, and, and that's a whole other regulatory um, uh, process uh, and perspective. And, but there's a guidance document specifically on that same surgical procedure exemption. And, and I think there's an opportunity there to utilize that. So if you have a device and you have a surgeon and you talk with the FDA, you can try and understand and appreciate that there may be less, I don't want to say less uh, rigid or, or lenient because I don't want to necessarily downplay the value of regulation, but there are pathways towards labeling that may be easier and less expensive if you follow their guidelines. So all of these are opportunities that are just hidden in these guidance documents and all you have to do is read them. You know, it's only 321 pages of public health law code. That's it. Um, and here's a slide that I really want you guys to figure out. What's the white elephant in the room? What do you think is the opportunity here. So this is someone who had an injury, they're having surgery. What's the opportunity here? So they have a big gap defect. We know about bone defects. They have muscle missing. Ah, we know about muscle. They have nerve missing. Ah, I get that. Whatever. It, they got skin, they'll need skin. Ah, whatever, that's fine. It's a surgeon with uh, you know, sticky hands. Okay, better gloves. You need wound closure. Okay, we figured all that out. But what's the white elephant here? What do you see here? What's the most prominent Well, it looks like they're um, little clamps. Scissors here, a little Kelly clamp here. What's the blue thing? It's probably just a, uh, essentially the equivalent of a rubber band to hold uh, soft tissues away. Well, you have there? Um, eh, maybe. What's the most prominent thing you see on this slide? How about I give you a hint? Blood. In all the surgery that we do, there's a ton of blood everywhere. And what do we do with that? We suck it up and throw it away in the trash. What's in blood that's valuable? Everything. Everything you could possibly want is in all this blood and we just toss it away. And this is something, that's the white elephant that we're totally not realizing. So if we talk about same surgical procedure, we talk about all this blood, everyone's getting all fancy with PRP and stem cells. What about all this blood that's here? No one, and well, actually there's recently within this year, there's been a couple of papers on using surgical blood, but we've used it in recirculating blood for, for joint, big joints and spine surgery, but what about usal, utilizing it as carriers, as, as, as promoters, as growth factors? Um, th there's, there's a lot of opportunity that's being missed with all this blood that's going away. And with that, I wanted to just uh, thank you all. Um, 
I was on a hike at Wilder Ranch and it looked like a U and I was about to come here so I thought this would be a great slide to, to, to end on. Um, and you can't see it here but these are all seals along here and there's one pup here and one pup there and the, this is all lined with seals and they were all, this is in the Santa Cruz area and they were all just giving birth and uh, so that was a fun experience and so was this. And I know there was a lot of information, but the most important thing I wanted to just share with you is think about the patient. Regulation is just paperwork. And just follow, follow your passion, and, and, and we're going to solve problems, hopefully together, and you'll put me out of a job. And then I'll retire. Thank you. Thank you.